The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, Fred, now 67 years old and 43 years clean and sober, takes us through his horrific eight-year story of excessive alcohol and drug abuse. You don't want to miss this episode. Hi, right, Fred. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Ol. It's good to be here. Excellent. How you feeling? I feel great. All right, perfect. You ready to get started? Ready. I'm ready if you are. I am absolutely ready. So, Fred, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today. Your hobbies, what you do for a living. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Okay, sounds good. Normally, I go to bed early. Go to bed 9, 10 o'clock at night. I get up around 5, and I really like where I live. It's a very quiet apartment, and I have gotten in the habit since last November of really expanding my quiet time, my prayer and meditation in the morning, and it's how I start my day. So I get up, and there's several books I read for spiritual inspiration, and then I get into about 20 to 25 minutes of meditation. Then I get on my knees, and I pray for about five minutes, and I pray for people that I haven't struggles in their recovery and that sets me on the right track for the day that really really helps me to you know put my ego in the back pocket and and I do a very sincere third step prayer you know I love the third step prayer I think that's one of the great gifts of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for me the most worthwhile thing I can do is be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous I sponsor a number of people Uh, I love the group the Eskazu group I'm in but by and large it's a comfortable easy does it type lifestyle and it's important for me to maintain my serenity and balance. And uh, that's what makes life happy, joyous, and free for me. Perfect. Thank you, Fred. And how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? My anniversary date is March 23rd of 1972. So tomorrow I'll be 43 years sober. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. All right, so tell us a little bit about the first time you drank or used drugs, Fred, and more importantly, how it made you feel that first time. The first time I drank, I was 15, almost 16 years old. It was in September of like 1963, and uh, I went to a a dance at the high school I was in, and uh, somebody brought a fifth of scotch, and I had some issues with authority. I had some issues. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin, and a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Scott Kiley, we passed the fifth of scotch back and forth. It was gone in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> and I can remember, you know, just for a short period of time, I wasn't self-conscious. I wasn't uncomfortable. I much, you know, it's that I don't care feeling. It's like you have the right to be yourself. It's the magic of alcohol. And I experienced that for a short time. I went from a gray out to a blackout into an alcoholic coma the first time I drank. Yeah. Scott brought me home that night. I was legless, and my parents the next morning, you know, very fortunate. My parents both got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous. So my parents, the morning when I got up, they told me, you know, you're supposed to figure this out for yourself, but we're going to give you a break. We're going to tell you, you're an alcoholic. You know, I was, I was eligible for the program. I was eligible for the program at 15. You know, they said, there's no question that I didn't drink for effect. There was no social drinking in my whole 
Drunkalug. It was immediately, I went over the top. But I know, you know, I made the decision I was going to chase this elusive high of alcohol. I was going to chase that come hella high water. So it took me nine years to get into the program. <laughs> you know? I get it. All right. So with that nice little warm up, Fred, it's time for me to turn the show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life. When you hit rock bottom, and finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Fred, take it away. Thanks, so Appreciate this opportunity, by the way. My pleasure. Okay, I grew up in a family where I was the second oldest of seven kids. My parents were both active alcoholics. They were good people, but they had the disease of alcoholism. That creates a lot of confusion when you're a kid. You don't grow up in a healthy psychological state, and I didn't. I remember one incident, you know, I love my father today, and through sobriety, you know, I wound up with a great relationship with my father, but I remember one time in the movie uh, Goodwill Hunting, they go into the L Street Tavern, and that was one of the places my father drank, and I remember him coming out of there after being in there for probably two or three hours. He'd go in there for one or two drinks, and he'd be in there for two or three hours, and I remember I was about eight years old, and he came out of there, and he shouldn't have been driving. He was really drunk, and we would be bouncing off the uh, curbstones and stuff, and it's scary, and you don't know what to think. Unfortunately, we got home in one piece. And as I said, through recovery, I got to create a good relationship with my father because he got sober and stayed sober. But my parents fighting with each other, and you know, it was just one of those environments where it was tough to mature. It was tough to develop self-confidence, self-esteem. You were really there on guard all the time, and I realize that today. I have a tendency to look around and be somewhat critical, and it comes out of those early years of my life. But anyway, uh, when I was 13 years old, my father went to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, a priest came to the house on a Friday afternoon. I was there when he came. My father really respected the priesthood and respected the Catholic Church. And this priest told, my father's name was Gus. He said, Gus, you need to go to AA. There's a meeting at the YMCA on Sunday afternoon, and you need to go and get some help. Because they could hear, we lived... The rectory for the church was right behind our house, so when my mother and father got into it, they could hear them yelling at each other and stuff, and they knew it was bad for the kids. So my father went to that meeting that Sunday afternoon at the YMCA, and he stayed sober for the rest of his life. My father was active in AA for 10 years, and then the last 19 years of his life, he didn't drink. He was dedicated to the family. He devoted his life to the happiness of the family, and that worked out. So he died in 1989 with 29 years of sobriety. Impressive. Very very. I realized how important that was for the family because it turned things around. My mother got sober two years later in 1962. My mother got sober. Eventually she'd go to meetings with my father and she knew she had a problem but she wasn't willing to throw in the towel and two years into it she threw in the towel and she got sober. My mother helped a lot of women. She sponsored a lot of women and she was active in AA. The last seven years of her life she had Alzheimer's and she died in 2006 with 44 years of sobriety. Oof. So she got sober and stayed sober the rest of her life. I was kind of, uh, I started drinking when I was 15, turning 16, as I said. I was a beer drinker. It was very seldom I drank anything other than beer. I found a group of guys in high school, and they were party animals, and I hung out with them and had a good time. And it became my lifestyle. It became the lifestyle I really, really enjoyed. I was accepted. For a long time, it was just a lot of laughs, you know. I, I found out eventually, I was drinking seven, six, seven days a week. A lot of these guys were drinking Thursday through Sunday, and then they'd chill it, go back to work and stuff. 
And I was drinking almost every day, and, you know, it was nothing for me to... Blackouts didn't affect me. For some reason, I'd have a blackout, and it was no big deal. And my parents put up with it because they knew their alcoholism and twisted me up pretty good, so... And my father just shake his head, you know, he'd say, you are really something, you know, he'd see me hungover, I used to try to help him over. Family's business was a coffee shop on the waterfront in Boston, and I'd go over there on Saturdays to help him clean it up, and he'd just shake his head, he'd go, Jesus, you ever going to learn, you know, because they saw me when I was 15 turning 16, they saw how hungover I was, and you can die, you can die from what I did, you know, you can wind up on your back, nobody around, start up chucking. I think Roy Rogers lost a kid that way. Paul Newman lost a kid that way. You die from the disease. So anyway, uh, my parents were doing their thing. I went through school when I was 18 years old. I had scoliosis of the dorsal spine. So on my 18th birthday on October 7th of 1965, I had my spine fused Good almost Lord. 50 years ago. Kept me out of Vietnam. Okay. You know, okay. I had friends that went to Vietnam, and some of them came back in boxes, and uh, some of them came back and said, you don't want any part of that. That was you know, that place over there. They don't know what they're doing. It's not a good situation. So what happened was I had this spinal fusion done. It laid me up for about six months of complete bed rest. And when I got finished with that, 50 years, I haven't had any trouble with my back. I was lucky. It, it prevented the uh, continual uh, rotation of my rib cage. My rib cage was turning. You see somebody with a like a hump back, it's their rib cage that's the hump. It's a lot of the times it's scoliosis of the dorsal spine. So anyway, but they did surgery, right? Yeah, they did. they took a piece of bone from my knee to my ankle, from my leg, and grafted it onto my backbone and prevented the rib cage from getting worse. That's what they did. And did they have to give you drugs for that, for the pain? No. Once that was done, it was complete bed rest. They put you in a cast from your neck to your knee. I'll tell you one incident. After six months, I went back to the hospital and. I hadn't been on my feet. I had been walking for six months. So they said, it's going to take you a few days to get back on your feet. I says, I don't think so. Sure enough, you know, they handed me a pair of crutches, and within a few hours, I was up and around. Right. But I, I, they put me in a cast, polyethylene, some kind of cast, plastic cast. And I would be out drinking with my friends. And I remember one time uh, I told this guy, he says, here, take this knife. We're going in this drugstore. We're going to get some stuff. And when we go in, I want you to come up behind me and stick the knife in my back, you know. And that's how crazy I was, you know, uh, just for a laugh, you know, see what the druggist says, see what he looks like, you know. And sure enough, the guy came up behind my back, lifted the knife, stuck it into my back, and it, it broke through the cast, but it didn't go into my skin. And that was the kind of stunts we'd pull. The guys I drank with and the guys I partied with were a lot of fun. They were good guys. Most of them are dead today. This was in the late 60s. I mean, we used to, this kid, Bobby Haywood, he had a big, like, 1956 Buick. And we used to all pile in. And this was when nobody knew what pot was, really. We would started smoking pot in the late 60s, mid-60s, late 60s. And we'd all get stoned. And then we'd go into, like, a Howard Johnson's or something. We'd all be laughing. And all these customers <laughs> had no idea what we were doing. I remember this stuff. This other kid, Richie Berry, he had a, a hot Ford, you know. It was a, a Ford with a, a hot engine. And we used to go up to the Blue Hills, and we'd all get stoned in the car. We'd be drinking beer, but we'd all get stoned on pot. And it's like anybody. The first time you start smoking pot, you think everything's a big joke. And, and he'd start driving 70, 80 miles an hour, and he'd turn off his headlights, you know. And we'd be up in the Blue Hills where they didn't have any streetlights, you know, just to see what people would do, you know. <laughs> Stuff like that. In 1969, I went to the Woodstock Music Festival. Some friends of mine uh, said, there's a music festival up in New York this weekend. You want to go? I said, sure. So the typical MO, I was a short order cook in a restaurant at the time. 
I told them Wednesday I was turning in my notice and I needed to come back Thursday and get my check. Normally Friday was payday, but typical alcoholic behavior, you know. <laughs> See you later. There's a music festival this weekend I got to go to. and uh, Of course. I need to get paid, so I get some money to go. And the people just shake their heads. They look at me. So Woodstock was a lot of fun. You know, I realized many years later that there wasn't any alcohol. There wasn't very much alcohol at Woodstock. And it's one of the reasons it was successful, because you didn't have those personality changes that you get when people are drinking and you've got a large crowd of people. Around, let's see, 1970, I went out to the West Coast. A couple of the guys were going out to the West Coast. I jumped in the car with them. We drove from Boston. We got to New Orleans. I ran out of money, so they left me in New Orleans. And I was working <laughs> I was working in uh, on an oil rig. You know, I had this Boston accent. I was working on an oil rig down in New Orleans, living in Algiers. But wait, they, they just dropped you off in well, New Orleans? And they, then what, you go in and out and got a job? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they told me. they, they I had reached a point where my friends were a little bit... I was unpredictable. Right. Okay? And, and some of my friends, they didn't want to get arrested. And I would do things like if a cop go car back in the late 60s or the early 70s, if a cop car drove by, I'd flip them the bird, you yeah. know, and then they'd pull in and roust you. And, and my friends got tired of that kind of stuff. It was always under the influence, you know? And through my friends, you know, I was smoking dope. I was doing speed, doing LSD. I was doing LSD at Woodstock, in fact, and... Smoking a lot of dope. Which is Eventually, curious. I, yeah. I, I had no idea. At Woodstock, they didn't yeah. allow alcohol. Well, we had to park eight miles away. We walked in from eight miles out. And there were no package stores up there. You were out in the Thule's. You know, people, there just wasn't any alcohol. We sent a biker. We had a biker. One of the friends of ours was on a motorcycle. So he went out and got a case or two of beer. And that gave us a beer or two to have just so we could say we drank a couple of beers at Woodstock. The majority of the people there didn't have any alcohol unless they brought it in with them. Is that why it everybody was, was high? Peaceful. It was peaceful, yeah. It okay. was a peaceful weekend. All right. You know? Yeah. So around 1970, 71, I'm in New Orleans. Man, I got ripped on white lightning, I remember. And it was one of those highs. I didn't know if I could come back down. Guy gave me some white lightning. I had some experiences down What is there. white lightning? That's like a homemade, very high alcohol content. Homemade booze. It's it's white. Okay. It's, they call it white lightning because it looks like water. It looks like vodka. Okay. But it's like 150 proof. Oh. Yeah. So you you take what you do is you take a bottle of Seven Up and you take the it was a half pint and you take a sh uh, a slug of the uh, white lightning, take the Seven Up and chase it with it and it'll go down. But uh, I had never drank that before, you know and. Got me really, really, really drunk, really drunk, drunker than usual. I remember the guys laughing their asses off. You know, they're a bunch of southern yahoos. They got the Yankee all messed up, and I was outside, and it was raining hard, and I was hitchhiking. I was trying to hitchhike up to New Orleans, but I didn't know if I was hitchhiking in the right direction, and they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> you know? I tell people now, you know, they say, you don't drink? I say, no. When I drink, I get stupid. And I look back at my drunk log and man, it was stupid personified. Ugh. So, because a lot of this stuff, you can get killed pretty easy. I, that same stint in New Orleans one time, I came to on the, the floor of the New Orleans City Jail, and somebody had booted me in the chin. My chin was split open, and uh, I was on the floor, and I was in there. And it was one of those times where I had coming up from being a roustabout in one of the, down in Morgan City, Louisiana, and I didn't know what I was in there for. You know, and when you're on the floor of a jail in a drunk tank and you don't know what you're in there for, 
because that's there's a lot of people in prison. I used to go to the prisons when I was sober and great at Boston. We'd, we'd take meetings to the prison, and a lot of those guys, they didn't remember what they did. They, they had no defense. They did it in a blackout, and that could have been me. Yeah. They could have told me I hurt somebody, I hurt somebody bad. I'd have no defense against that. So anyway, I came back from the West Coast. I remember my father said, no, I went out to the West Coast, went out to California, spent about six months to a year. I was out there in an earthquake. There was a big earthquake in February 8th of 1971, I think it was, at 6.02 in the morning. It was a 6.8 earthquake in Northridge. We were right at the epicenter, and it was a serious earthquake. Then they had a uh, crack in the Van Norman Dam, so they started to evacuate Northridge, and we just put on our bathing suits, went to the baggage store, got a couple of cases of beer, Figured, you know, <laughs> we'd hang out. And uh, I remember my friends told me, hey, it's time for you to head back to Boston. We don't want to put up with your foolishness. My friends every once in a while tell me, why don't you stop drinking and just smoke dope? You know, and I do that for a while. And then they say, well, maybe it's time for you to start drinking again because you're crazy on dope. <laughs> <laughs> I just know, I just know I'm one of those people that needs to be in this natural state of mind. That's how I function best. So, so what happened was my, I called my father, you know, and my father says, what do you want? I says, uh, I'm ready to come back. Uh, I could use some money. So my father sent me 300 350 bucks, whatever it was, for a plane ticket from L.A. to Boston. And I blew it, you know. Naturally, you know, I spent that. And I wound up hitchhiking from Los Angeles to Boston. Yeah, I hitchhiked. <laughs> I hitchhiked. And I'm in a very crazy state of mind. I remember one guy had me in his truck. I was in his truck, and we started talking, and he pulled over on the side of the road. He was giving me a ride. He was giving me a ride for maybe a couple of hundred miles, three, four, five hundred miles, whatever. And he pulls over to the side of the road, and he says, why don't you sit in the back? <laughs> I was way out there, and I was lucky. I got back to Boston, and I was there back about a year, and I went on a real wing ding uh, from November of 1971 to St. Patrick's Day of 1972. I just drank and drank and partied and drank and I supported myself by being a strip and tackless man as a carpet layer. We do big commercial jobs. Only the thing was when I was hung over, I'd be laying that tackless down when driving nails into concrete and I'd be denting the crap out of the baseboard. Oh. You know? So that wasn't working out yep. too good, you know. I, I just jeez. <laughs> I look back at all that stuff and it's good to remember it, but uh, it was so sad, it was so pathetic. So what happens is, I'm back in Greater Boston. At Christmas time that year, I had a full beard, okay? And I wasn't getting enough attention, you know? And, and then, again, psychologically, I was real twisted up. So what I did that Christmas was I went drinking with the guys, and uh, I shaved half the beard. <laughs> I shaved off half the beard. One side of the beard came off, and I went into Boston drinking. I remember I went in the package store, and they wouldn't serve me. I went in the package store, and the guy wouldn't serve me. He goes, no. No, you look like you've had enough. But I went into Boston, I'd be sitting at the bar, and, and geez, it's like real insanity. Real, you real insanity. the bar with half a beard? Yeah, half a beard. Half my face was shaved, and half of it wasn't. Well, did anybody ask you? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it was just a big laugh. It was like, what did you do? What could you do to get laughs? You know, you were talking about that. I don't know if you finished the story about the... Where did you take the... You said you somebody handed you some white lightning or something? What was this? That was down in New Orleans when I was living in New Orleans. What happens is they have roadhouses down there, and uh, they're like card games, you know, poker games. This is long before Texas Hold'em. Okay. And when you're working offshore as a roustabout, you're working 72 hours out, and then you come in for 72 hours. Okay. Okay, so it's 12 hours a day, six days, and then you're off for six days. 
but they pay you, they give you 72 hours pay. So I would come in and I'd be tired and, and I'd sit down in one of these roadhouses to play poker with these guys. And these guys were good. These guys were semi-professional poker players. Right. Okay. They were like gamblers, semi-professional gamblers. And I remember sitting there and it, they were making eye contact with each other like, who's going to take the next mm-hmm. hand? And, and they left me with enough money for breakfast. Okay. Because <laughs> the guy wanted me to have breakfast. But I had just blown 72 hours pay, and I wasn't even back 48 hours, okay? Yeah, so this was the stuff. So the guy takes me out to breakfast. He says, you ever drink white lightning? This is after I just ate one of those big, you know, American breakfast, pancakes, scrambled eggs, bacon, all nine yards. I says, no, I haven't, you know? And he says, well, we need to introduce you to white lightning, and I'm game, you know? It's about 10 o'clock in the morning, you know? I've just blown all my money, and... And by noontime, you know, I was lit up like a Christmas tree. And I was, <laughs> I was trying to hitchhike to New Orleans, to Algiers, where I lived. And I wasn't sure if I was going in the right direction. By this time, these guys were laughing so hard. It was like, we got this Yankee son of a bitch. That was their attitude. And, I, you know, I look at it. I put myself in the situation. You know, when, I, when he asked about the white lightning, I could have said no. I didn't say no. So that was just, I look back on all that stuff. But what happened after you drank the white lightning? I wound up getting back to Algiers, and the problem was, normally if I get real drunk, after a while it starts to wear off. Right, of course. With the white lightning, it wasn't wearing off. It scared me. Oh, wow. It scared me. I was drunk. I was real, real drunk, and I wasn't getting undrunk. And so I I remember uh, I got some Jim Bean bourbon, and I got some chewing tobacco. I was doing whatever I could to kind of take the edge off the white lightning. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Sounds horrible. Well, it's a true story. And uh, and it worked, you know. And then all of a sudden I was back up in Algiers and I was broke again. And I had, you know, it was going to be six days before I head back to work. But anyway, uh, yeah, I was lucky I was, you know... Many, many times in my drinking and drugging, I OD'd on heroin. I, I got into heroin. I had some friends who were doing heroin. And it was the ritual of it, you know. Uh, this girl I was very interested in, she's shooting heroin, you know. Not the type of girl you bring home to mom and pop. Right. I got a crush on her, a bad crush on her. Uh, her name was Linda Morton. Okay. And uh, she was a kind of a wild child. And she started doing heroin on top of everything else. And... Uh, and so I got into doing heroin, and I had a low tolerance for heroin. I could, sh- I could shoot a cotton. You know, somebody could shoot a bag, cook up a bag of heroin, and leave the cotton. You put it in the syringe through the cotton and leave the cotton. And I could just reheat the cotton and get off in the cotton, and i get off real good. So whenever I did a whole bag of heroin, I was guaranteed to OD, and I OD'd once in uh, Massachusetts, and I OD'd once in California. Fortunately, I had people around me. They knew what to do when you OD'd, so they saved my life. What did they do? Linda Morton was one of the ones that saved my life. One time they threw me in a bathtub and filled it with uh, ice and hit me up with a salt solution. A salt solution will kind of negate the, the overdose. And uh, these two scars on my arm were abscesses different times when I shot heroin. And uh, I wound up going to the city emergency hospital and have the abscesses. So you abscesses. did this... For how long did you shoot heroin? Probably a year. Oh, the so last this, year. It wasn't like you just dabbled in it. Well, I mean, it, at the end of my drinking, what happened in you know, last week, around St. Patrick's Day, I went into Boston. I had a, a weekend drunk. And then I came back to Quincy, where I lived. There was a cop in Quincy. And he told me, we're picking you up. This was on Sunday. Let's see, I came in Thursday, November, March 23rd. A week before that, 
this cop from Quincy told him, we're going to pick you up and lock you up just for being a general nuisance. Nothing specific, just being a general nuisance. So the next day, the first thing I did, I got up the next morning, I went to Cape Cod. I didn't drive, okay? I didn't get my license till I was sober, 25 years old, okay? Because I knew, I knew it would be bad news. I didn't go in the military, I didn't get married, and I didn't have kids, okay? Because I was just a party animal. I was a serious party animal. When I saw the movie Animal House with John Belushi, I identified with that a lot. Okay? A lot. Okay? And my friends were kind of like the guys in Animal House. So anyway, in my last week, I went down the Cape. Who's got the place down the Cape but Scott Kiley? My friend who I split that fifth of scotch with when I was almost 16 years old. Oh, wow. Okay? Yeah, he's got a place in Yarmouth on the Cape. So I'm hanging out with him, and he's dealing heroin. He's dead now, but he's dealing heroin. So I get down there. He says, you want to go to New York with me? I said, sure. So we go to New York. We go to Harlem. He picks up a bundle of heroin, and the guy wants us to shoot a bag each to prove we're not cops. Oh, wow. And I explained to the guy, if I shoot a bag of heroin, I'm going to OD. Is that what you want? And the guy thought about it. You know, the guy thought about it. He says, do half a bag. I says, all right, I can do half a bag. So I did half a bag, and it turned out okay. But we got a bundle of heroin. Scott unloaded that. And I'm there, and then as soon as he unloaded that, he says, I got this other guy here on the Cape that I can get a bundle off of, but, you know, I'm going to get it on consignment. And Scott had a Winchester, no, a Remington shotgun. That was a BB gun, but it looked just like, exactly like a Remington shotgun. And when you pumped that, the pumped it, the pump action sounded just like a real Remington shotgun. So Scott tells me, here's what we're going to do. We're going out to see this guy, and... Uh, I'm going to talk to him, and when he shows me the dope and hands it to me, you're going to pump that shotgun in the back seat, and I'll do the talking. That's all you have to do. I said, sure. Jeez. So he ripped this guy off for a bundle of heroin. He said he would pay for it later. I don't know if he ever paid for it because I wound up getting sober. But anyway, real close to when that was happening, the point I'm making is I was getting so self-destructive. Somebody would say, hey, you need to do this. I understand when people get talked into doing stupid stuff like robbing banks and doing stuff like that. I understand it. Because you reach a point where you're so self-destructive, you don't care what happens to you. And that was the point I reached through my drinking and drug. And I, I was so disgusted with myself that dying wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. Yes. You know? So what happens is I have my last drink up until right now. My last drink of alcohol was a water glass, half full of Bacardi rum and a half full of peach brandy. And who am I with? Sitting next to me is Scott Kiley. So I split that fifth of scotch the first time I drank really any amount of alcohol. And nine years later, I'm having this water glass half full of Bacardi rum and half full of peach brandy. And Scott's sitting there. So what happens is I'm down the Cape and I got a dog at the time. I was given a dog by a friend of mine out of a litter. And the dog was four months old in March 23rd, well, March 22nd, March 23rd. The dog was four months old and the dog's name was Cocaine. Name the dog Cocaine. <laughs> It's a great little dog, great little dog. So the next day, I got up, and there were several stunts I had pulled during that time down the Cape that were catching up with me. I knew I needed to get away, so I decided to hitchhike from Yarmouth on the Cape to Quincy, which is no long way. I got back to Quincy. I had my last drink about 1.30 in the morning of March 23rd, and I went by my family's house at about 11 in the morning. My mother was home. My father was at work. And my mother, who in 1972 was about 10 years sober, she told me, Rick, they used to call me Rick, Frederick. My nickname was Rick. She said, Rick, 
you want to drink, that's your business. But I'd prefer you did it out of state. <laughs> because every time I hear the cops or every time I hear an ambulance, I'm thinking, it's you. Yeah. And it's yeah. tearing me up. So I'd prefer you didn't. And my friends had told me pretty much the same thing. If you want to drink and party, Fred, that's your business. But why don't you do it away from us? Because you're too unpredictable. We're not sure what's going to happen. And I can understand where they're coming from. Today, I really did push the envelope, and I burned a lot of bridges. So I left my parents' house that day, and uh, two miracles happened to me later on in that day. I remember I went over to Marymount Park, which was up the street from where I lived. And while I was at the park, for the first time in my life, I experienced the DTs, delirium tremors, and I got very paranoid. When you're in the DTs, you start to realize you're on the fringe of losing your mind. You're about to have a nervous breakdown where your mind just, you know, it's... They talk about it in the program as a wet brain. And it's when all of a sudden your mind shifts and it doesn't come back. I saw a friend of mine, it happened to him when he was smoking angel dust. His mind shifted and he had to be taken care of for the rest of his life. So I went through the delirium tremors for an hour or two and then I started walking and uh, I had, I think I had 25, 26 cents in my pocket. I was unemployable. I was, I really belonged in a mental institution. You know, I was pretty sure I had pushed the envelope to the point that I was really, I was certifiably crazy. And if they wanted to lock me up, they had every right to. And I was walking not too far from my parents' home about 3 o'clock that afternoon. And uh, all of a sudden, a voice inside of me, a voice inside my head said, you had better straighten yourself out or you will wish you had. And I knew that wasn't me. You know, today I believe in spirit guides, I believe in the fellowship of the spirit, I believe in a lot of things. But that day there, I was crazy as crazy could be, and all of a sudden this same thought ran through my head. You know, it was loud, it was loud enough for me to pay attention to it. You had better straighten yourself out or you will wish you had. And I took action on that, you know, I started thinking I was headed for Skid Row in, uh, in Boston, you know, I was headed for Skid Row and the dog, cocaine didn't deserve to, what, what did this four month old puppy deserve to wind up on Skid Row for? It's no life for a puppy, but it was okay for me. And you know, that whole idea in the big book where it talks about defying God, you know, defiance is a chief characteristic of an alcoholic. I had a lot of defiance. And the defiance could have put me in an early grave, could have put me in a prison, it could have put me in a mental institution. I was a candidate for all three. So what happens is, I'm only a, probably a couple of hundred yards from my parents' house when this occurs to me. And I took action on it. And sometimes I used to say, you know, it was like a window open just wide enough for me to jump through it. And I jumped through it. And it saved my life. I went up to the front door of my parents' house. My father was home from work. He answered the door. He said, what can I do for you? I said, I've had it. I'm throwing in the towel. What do I do to get straightened out? He said, come on in. My parents were smart enough. They called the Boston Central Service Office. And they had a couple of young guys come out, a couple of guys in their 30s. I was 24 years old. Had a couple of guys in their 30s come out. I remember the guys' name were Bob and Kevin. And they picked me up to go to a meeting that night. You know, my father tried to talk to me a little bit because he had heard I was doing heroin. He says, do you need to go somewhere and get cleaned up, straightened out? And I said, no, I think I'll be all right. I had a brief kind of real uh, hallucinatory uh, experience. It wasn't bad. I'm a very lucky guy. I'm a very lucky yeah, guy. for sure. Because I needed to be detoxed. I needed to be detoxed. I also know my personality well enough that if I started doing 30-day treatments, that would have become a gain with me. You know, maybe two, three times a year I can go to treatment. And what I realized, I had been sent to AA a number of times, though, 
when I was like 18, 19, 20, 21. I had been, whenever the heat was on, if I get in trouble with the law or if I had really screwed up, I'd go to AA for a little while. And I was addicted, or I was really addicted to the friends and the lifestyle I had. It was too much fun. Yeah, I know I'm a screw-up. I know I'm a drunk. I know I'm a joke. But, you know, these are my people. And when I'm hanging out with them, it's all a big joke. Right. You know, I don't fit in. I don't fit in to normal society. I just don't. Right. You know, so, but this time here, I'm desperate. Okay, I pushed the envelope to the point. I was on the fringe. I was on the edge of a wet brain. I came very close to a wet brain, I know today. So what happens is these guys pick me up that night to go to a meeting. And I'm in the car and I'm sitting on my hands and I don't want to talk. You know, they're kind of joking with each other. And I don't know if they're taking me to a mental institution. I don't know where they're taking me, but it doesn't matter anymore. I've thrown in the towel. I've surrendered. It was a Thursday night, the Weymouth group. And I go to that meeting and I'm sitting there. And the meeting's up there an hour and a half. They have a break halfway through it. And usually what groups do is a group goes and puts on the commitment. You know, they'd have an outside group come into the Weymouth group and they'd have five or six speakers during that hour and a half, and each one of them take 10, 15 minutes, whatever, and just tell about their experience, strength, and hope. And I'm hearing them, and they're repetitious. Boston is a great place to get sober. Very repetitious. And today I use that uh, Hazleton 24-hour book, and I know that's where a lot of the fundamental Boston sobriety came out of that book, because they talk about getting on your knees, you know? And these people said over and over again, you know, there's five things you're going to do if you want this program to work for you, you're going to get on your knees in the morning. You're going to ask God to help you to stay away from a drink because you're going to find out you can't do it by yourself. You're going to join a group and you're going to become a member of that group, not just a name on a list. You're going to get a sponsor, somebody that you get along with and can be friends with that's going to explain to you what this program is about and take you through the steps. If you drank every day, you're going to make a real honest effort to get to a meeting every day. And at the end of the day, you're going to get back on your knees and thank God for day of sobriety. Because that was the most important thing that happened to you that day. So these people, in about, I'd say, two-thirds of the way through the meeting, the second miracle of that day happened to me. Something inside me said, you can do that. And all of a sudden, it wasn't so complicated, I got confused. It was those five things, and those five things I was capable of. As crazy as I was, those five things I was capable of. And all of a sudden, I got enthusiastic. <laughs> so I go from being this whack job at 2.30 in the afternoon that just got through the DTs and drank myself, you know, really burnt the bridges with friends and family, to all of a sudden I'm this enthusiastic AM member. And sure enough... What happens is on the ride home, telling these guys, well, oh, wait till you hear my story. I was in an earthquake in 1971. I hitchhiked from, from, from L.A. to Boston. You know, I was at Woodstock. And these two guys are sitting in the front seat going, who the hell is this? What happened to the guy we brought to the meeting? And, you know, it was funny. And I started going to meetings. I went to meetings every day. And, you know, when you're in that kind of psychological pain, and I was in a lot of psychological pain, what happened was... Uh, I had to work through it. One of the reasons I didn't want to drink again was I didn't want any part of the first three years of my sobriety. First three years of sobriety, it was like a roller coaster ride. You know, when I was at a meeting, when I was with the people in the program, everything was kind of mellow. But when I was by myself, it was like, whoa, squirrely as hell, you know? I was suicidal, I was crazy. 
And I realized today, you know, I was one of those that probably could have used a good detox. And But uh, the way it happened, I averaged seven meetings a, a week for the first six years I was in AA. Good Lord. I had a great sponsor, the, the guy named Jimmy Roach. Remember, I called him when I was 20 years sober and thanked him, you know. Yeah, Jimmy was funny. Jimmy was a, a mailman. He sort of reminded me of Cliff Clavin. When he got sober, <laughs> there was a lot of mail that was up in his attic that had never been delivered. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he was funny. Yeah. Great sense of humor. But at the same time, he was, you know, he would tell me, don't take yourself too seriously, but take this program deadly seriously because your future hinges on you doing this right. And he was right, you know, he was right. That's the famous Rule 62. Yeah, yeah, don't take yourself too seriously. Exactly, too seriously. So I belonged to the Quincy Bay group. It was a fun group, an active group. We went on a lot of commitments. I remember we used to do stuff, uh, I don't know, we would play softball at one of the prisons, either Walpole or Dedham, and, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, go out there, and I was stupid enough to be catching. I'd be catching, we'd be playing softball, and these guys would be out by about 20 feet, but Jesus, they'd come right through you, you know, because they had nothing to lose. We were playing the prisoners, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But was that service work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of different things you could do, you know. I got involved in service, you know, I... I really learned about what the program was about because I saw there were three legacies. You know, there's recovery, unity, and service, and the recovery is the steps. The personal recovery is going through the steps and then taking other people, sponsored people, and taking them through the steps. And then the unity is the traditions and understanding why the traditions. The traditions are important because I've got a, I know you'll find this hard to believe, I've got a 24-year-old grand stepson. Grand stepson. When I got married, my wife had a 17-year-old daughter. Okay. So she was my stepdaughter. So okay. now she's had a, a baby boy in 1990, and he's about 24 years old. He's about six foot three. And, uh, and if he needed this program five or ten years from now, I want him to find the same program that I found in 1972. That's why the traditions are important. It keeps the program from getting real watered down or from really becoming a something you don't recognize. And then the service legacy, you know, I got involved at the group level helping out with chairs and setting up the hall and being active with different things the group was doing. I also uh, became a general service rep. I became a district committee person. And I also, I got the opportunity to go to the general service office in New York many years ago when it was on Park Avenue South. I met the people there. I saw what was going on there. And, you know, all of a sudden I realized, you know, this program. I had a brother in 1975. I got a younger brother. I was just talking to him yesterday. He's 39 years sober. He's had 39 years sober last month. That's what I love about Boston because it's not about getting sober. It's about getting sober and learning to stay sober day at a time. And the first struggle is getting comfortable in your sobriety and being clean. The second struggle is learning to be happy in sobriety and recovery and developing the acceptance you need and realizing when I surrender to a higher power, I no longer have to worry about being an inadequate human being. And to me, it makes so much sense. I look at the big book today, you know, I love the big book. There's so much wisdom in it. You can be sober a year, you can be sober 43 years, and you can still see wisdom that you didn't see before. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in in that book. So what happens is my father got sick one day at work. I was working odd jobs. I remember I got my license and I got a job as a cab driver and I had the Wolfman Jack on the radio and I'm blitzing through Quincy like 
I was like a low rider, you know, and had the radio way up. <laughs> there he goes. You know, it's like the tech. You have all these experiences. And one day my father got sick at work, and I was working for him. I, that voice within is so important. I was living at home. My parents loved me living at home the first three years I was sober. And my father used to get up at 4.30, quarter, 5 in the morning to go to work. My father wasn't a young guy, you know, he's 64, 65 years old at the time, so I'm there and I'm full of piss and vinegar and, you know, I don't know what I want to do with myself and I'm doing these knock-around odd jobs and a voice inside of me said, get up and help him. So I did, I got up, went to work with him and I worked for him for about a year, about 15 months and one day he was there and he got sick, he wasn't feeling good so he says, I gotta go home, you close up and we'll see you at home. So that was in August of about 1974. I kept working, and it was about regaining respect. You know, today I understand you have to earn respect. Respect doesn't come automatically. And with my family, I had to re-earn respect because I had destroyed. I was an embarrassment to my family for a long time. So I started working, and uh, in December, my mother and father, they pulled me aside, and they said, we're going to make a deal with you. I said, yeah. He says, you're going to pay us so much a week out of the proceeds from that coffee shop, and in five years, you're going to own it. Wow. And I shook hands with them because I had no money. You know, if they had asked me for a price, I had no money. Right. And it turned out to be a good deal. It turned out to be a real good deal. It worked out, you know, and I remember that's when my father and I, there was a lot of mutual respect because he knew that was the waterfront's kind of a tough environment. There's a lot of characters on the waterfront. I had experienced that. So five years later, I completed that deal with my father. The first thing I did was I was taking a three-month vacation. <laughs> you know, I, I had a kid working for me. They had a bad winter, just like this last winter up in the greater Boston. It was horrendous. They had a bad winter in 1978. It was a bad winter, and I just got tired of it. I mean, by the time I finished that deal with my father, I was like 34 years old. I was single. I remember I went and saw this uh, psychologist because I was going to get ready to leave greater New England. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't running or I wasn't doing a geographic cure. And I told him my reasons. He agreed with me. The weather was the paramount reason. I just got tired of the winters up there. I drove around the country, went to meetings, and I wound up in San Antonio, Texas. I left Boston on January 10th of 1981, and I arrived in San Antonio February 10th of 1981, a month later. I looked around San Antonio. I liked it. What happened was the weather... I like, the rodeo was coming to town. Yeah, I, I grabbed a newspaper in a Denny's and the rodeo was coming to town. They were having a car show. I like cars. And the car show was coming to town. Roy Orbison was going to play at the car show. I thought that was great. I had been real active in AA the nine years. You know, I had done it right. I had been active in a number of groups. And, and the first thing I did when I got to San Antonio, because I was told, you know, when you move, it can be pretty dangerous because you've got to rebuild the relationships and you've got to rebuild the security in your sobriety when you move. And that's what I did. I got to San Antonio. There was a Club 12 there in San Antonio, and I started going to Club 12, and then I joined a group because a club is different than a group, and I wanted to belong to a group. And I got active there, and then uh, somebody asked me, what do you do in Boston? I said, we, my family had a coffee shop on the waterfront in Boston. They said, we could use some fresh seafood here. So I went from being unemployable the first six or so months I was sober to uh, when they said, you know, we could use fresh seafood here in San Antonio. Uh, I thought about it, and I, I went out, and I saw 15 white tablecloth restaurants. I saw either the chef or the, the general manager who ordered the food, and 12 out of the 15 said they'd do business if I could bring in fresh seafood from the Northeast. And I had the connections. I knew the people that did it. 
and they had an excellent product, and that was what made the business easy. And so I started North Atlantic Seafood Distributors in May of 1981, and I built it up over five or six years and sold it. Wow. Yeah, and I was active in AA there. I remember they did a little bit different, but Boston sobriety, Boston AA is great because they don't fool around. It's very fundamental, and they keep it simple. And what I want to get to is, you know, I met my wife in San Antonio, In 1983, I met her. She moved in with me. She was from Germany. German woman who moved to San Antonio. And we got married in 1987 during an AA roundup at the Riviera in in Las Vegas. You know, it was a weekend roundup and it was a weekend wedding. The family came in like on Thursday. It was Thanksgiving weekend of 1987 and it was a weekend wedding and it was a lot of fun. And you'd already sold the business? I'd sold the business and I took some time off after that. And then I started working as a general manager in a home improvement. Now, I can't drive a nail straight, but I got good people skills, yes. you know? So this guy hired me. Actually, I worked for him for a month for free because I was in Texas, right to work state, and I wanted 65, 70 grand a year to start. So I says, here's what I'll do. I went up to the owner of the business. I says, I'll work for you for a month. And if I can make a difference, enough of an impact, then I want you to hire me as your general manager. He says, that sounds good. So for a month, I helped him with his marketing, and he almost doubled the amount of business he was doing. Wow. Yeah, so he hired me, and then that was a good experience, and that's what brought me to Atlanta, Georgia later. I worked with him for about two years, two and a half years, and I finally said to him, I said, you know, you can sell this. You get good numbers. You got two and a half years of of strong sales, and he says, I don't think so. I think it's personality-driven. I said, no, it's numbers-driven, and I found a buyer for him, and I helped him sell his business. And he sold it, and he signed an agreement not to compete in the Southwest. So he opened one in Atlanta. He opened a business that did these cameras for convenience stores. I got married. You know, my marriage was something else. My wife, three months from the time she moved in with me, she moved in in August, and in November she came into the program. She was kind of a a party girl. She liked happy hour, and you know. But I didn't see her as an alcoholic. I saw her just as a heavy drinker. But she had bought him down emotionally, and she came into AA. She died on January 1st of 2008 with 24 years of sobriety. Wow. Yeah. And we had a great marriage. I've been blessed with great health, a great marriage. And the idea of drinking never crossed. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, you know, it's not an option. So what happens is I moved to Atlanta to go to work for this gentleman in Atlanta, and my wife comes with me, and, and we're there for 20 years. And at 25 years of sobriety, let's see, that's uh, 1997, my wife and I got involved at the Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta. The minister was four or five years sober, great guy, and I got away from AA. I got away from AA. There was a lesson in that for me, you know, and uh, we got very involved at the Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta, met a lot of good people. It was metaphysics, and we learned a lot about metaphysics, Ernest Holmes and Science of Mind. I wasn't going to meetings. We still going to the international AA conventions, but I wasn't going to meetings. We travel a lot. We used to take eight weeks vacation a year. Went to Europe eight times for a month at a time. You know, we <laughs> I had, love it. Man. Oh yeah, yeah, I love it, man. I have a great time. And what happened was, about twelve years later, thirteen years later, twelve years, I guess, my wife was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer. So I wasn't grounded in AA. I wasn't grounded spiritually. And all of a sudden, when my wife died, I wasn't grounded in my marriage. And the kid in me came out, you know, and the disease came out, and the self-will run riot came out. And, I, and there's a good lesson in this, you know, the disease is there. Always. It's there. And it's like a psychological disability. And if you want using the tools in the program, that psychological disability will come out and bite you in the ass. 
you know, fortunately for me, drinking wasn't an option, but that year I made a fool of myself. It was 36 years sober. It had been 36 years since I had taken a drink. But all of a sudden, I'm running around and really out of line. I embarrassed myself. I embarrassed my family sober. And that's what the disease will do. After a year of doing that, I realized I needed to push the restart button. And I've got an older brother who lives in Hawaii, but him and I don't get along that good. So going to Hawaii wasn't really a great idea. And then I knew three or four people that had property down here in Costa Rica. I'd been down here in 2004 for Christmas and New Year's. And my wife and I had always said we'll probably retire down in Central America or Mexico. And what happened was came down to Costa Rica. But that year... I experienced the disease, the self-will run riot, that is alcoholism. I experienced it really, really strongly without drinking and using. And I came down to Costa Rica. I got re-involved in the program. And I've had five or six of the best years of my life. To wrap this up, I really love the Escazú group. I love the people in it. It's interesting. It's fun. Being active in AA is the easiest, softer way for me. The key for me, what this program really is all about is you come in and hopefully you're willing to surrender your right to drink and use. Then you're willing to surrender to the program. Then you're willing to surrender to a sponsor and work the steps. And then eventually you're willing to surrender to a higher power. Because if you do those things, you're going to be secure in your recovery. And as it says in the big book, it's going to give you a life that you can't imagine. I know you're experiencing that, oh, and I'm experiencing that right now. And I appreciate this opportunity to tell my story. Is that your story, Fred? That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic, Fred. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. I've known Fred now for probably as long as you've been here. If you've been here for five, six years, we've known each other. Yeah, I I, I saw you. You were the big cojoner at NA. (laughs) When I came in, you were the big cojoner at NA. I don't yeah. know about the big you know? kahuna, but we have similar personalities, very involved in the program. When I'm involved, I'm either in or I'm out. For me, there's no half measures in anything. So yeah, so when we met, there was that connection and personalities is that love for the program, love for the fellowship, love right. for God. Right. There's a huge love and respect for God. And I know what you're talking about. I know when you steer away from the spiritual principles of the program and your behavior goes out of whack and there's a guilt shame and remorse that comes with that and you'll hit a bottom you hit an emotional bottom and fortunately for us we didn't have to go back out and drink or use over it we find our way back to the fellowship and ask for help right or just replug back in the minute you start doing service everything changes it all changes this podcast and hearing stories and sharing these stories with the world has made an unbelievable impact in my life. And so I'm grateful to be here to share this opportunity. Fred, how old are you? 67. So at 67 years old. 67 years young. Well, 67 years young, <laughs> which is what I should have said that. I hear that from you every time. But Fred gets an opportunity to leave his legacy. And legacy of sobriety and recovery is powerful because you've spent... 40 years, and you're going to celebrate how many years tomorrow? 40, 43 years tomorrow. Here's another. Anniversary. 43 yeah. years tomorrow. This is a wonderful time. I was just telling Fred, this is it's HP, baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is a high-power yeah. moment that it just so happened to work out because we've been trying to work out this interview up until right now, and it just he said, no, I celebrate 
43 years tomorrow, I go, it's HP, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Fred, you do have 43 years, but you certainly have a lot of experience to share with our newcomers, which takes us into our next section for the newcomers. So, Fred, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers that you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. All right. So, number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, what it was was I had a tight group of friends. You know, I had a tight group of friends that were party animals. They were a lot of fun. They were very funny. And I couldn't break that lifestyle. You know, for me, giving up drinking meant I had to give up my friends. And I wasn't willing to do that until I was really desperate though. When I was desperate, I was lucky the program worked. I realize that today. But uh, when I wasn't desperate, I wasn't willing to change my lifestyle. Perfect. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Well, as I was going to meetings and, and as I got active in the group, I think when I was 30, 45 days into it, I realized, you know what? I haven't even considered drinking. I haven't considered drinking, considered using. And I was such a daily lush. I used to think it was funny to get drunk every day. And all of a sudden, I'm not thinking and I'm not considering drinking. I'm not considering going back to the old crowd. I realized there was something beyond me. There was something helping me. You know, you say HP, baby. There was something helping me that I didn't quite understand, but I, I, I appreciated the help. I had gratitude for that help. And it's the same help I get right now, because this is, I have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. That was going on at 30 or 45 days. It's going on at 43 years. Perfect. And it's the same for me, Fred. Absolutely. And for countless others. So, Fred, number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Mm, that's a good one. Or currently. Well, today, what I recommend, if a newcomer comes in, they need to get into a group reading. I Believe it or not, I was too scrambled to be able to read the big book when I was new. I love to read today. I've read, I don't know, maybe a thousand books since I've been sober. But when I came in, I couldn't read the big book of the 12 and 12 by and of myself. I had to go to a group. I remember going to this men's meeting. It was a men's stag meeting on Sunday morning, and they would read the big books paragraph by paragraph. I remember getting to page 53 in that paragraph that said, you know, there'll come a point in time in every alcoholic's life where they'll come to realize that either God is everything or God is nothing. And my street smarts kicked in. And all of a sudden, my street smarts said, that's important. Make a mental note of that. That's important. And it is. It's very important. When I, sit down, when I sit down with somebody that's new in the program, I say, let's read this paragraph out of page 53, you know, and see what you think. Because it's true. That's what I believe today. God is either everything or, or God is nothing. And today, for me, God is everything. What are you reading currently? We've got a men's group right now that meets on Wednesday night. One of the guys I sponsored gave me this book called Being Sober and Becoming Happy by uh, Dr. John A. McDougall, who was the director of, who was, I guess he's not there anymore, but he was the director of spiritual guidance at Hazleton up in Minnesota. And it's a great book. We use this book for our men's stag meet chapter by chapter. I get a lot out of it. We have to remember that when AA started, 
it was a hope and a prayer. It wasn't a guarantee. We're 80 years into it. It's as if you'll do what you need to do, you know, if you'll follow the formula, NA and all the other spinoffs of AA, it's the same formula. If you'll develop a conscious contact with a higher power, develop an attitude of gratitude, go to meetings, get a sponsor, go through the steps, join a group and become an active member of that group. If you do that, 80 years of this thing has proven it will work. And it's not about getting sober just for a while. It's about getting sober. So You're a young guy, oh. I came in at 24. I didn't want to be bouncing in and out of this thing for 30 or 40 years, okay? I knew if I did it right, I didn't have to do that. And I, the guys I sponsor, I tell them the same thing. You're getting sober so that you can stay sober one day at a time for as long as you'll live. So this book here has been real bonus. It's kind of modern sobriety. It's, you know, he, does a, he talks about a lot of stuff in here, but uh, I love the big book. But this book here is the book I'm currently kind of focused on outside of the big book. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. And number four. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? My sponsor, Jimmy Roach. Jimmy Roach one time told me, he said, you know, there was nothing wrong with tough love. And the group I got sober in the Quincy Bay group, they knew that if they had to kind of bang you upside the head verbally or psychologically, it was allowed. And they had an expression, don't knock somebody down if you're not willing to pick them back up. But he came to me one day and he said, you know, Fred, you've got a lot of anger. People are a little bit afraid of you. He said, you need to deal with that. If you need some help, you let me know. And that suggestion made me think about it. I tried to really determine where the anger came from, and I realized I was angry with my parents and their alcoholism because I wanted to be, a, you know, I still had some victim in me, and I wanted to blame somebody for the condition I was in. And after I got past that, I wanted to blame the disease, and it's such a vicious, lousy disease. It really is. But I realize, okay, what I can do about that is I can stay sober for the rest of my life one day at a time, and that'll take care of that. And then finally I arrived at the conclusion I was really angry with God. Deep down I was angry with God. And yet it's hard to develop a friendship or a relationship if you've got a resentment and anger towards somebody. And I had to deal with that. I had to really come to terms with that. And, you know, as crazy as it sounds, forgive God for what I had experienced up until that point and realized God had given me a second chance at life and it was up to me to make good on it. Perfect. Love it. Question number five. If you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? One suggestion, part A and part B, okay? A newcomer, whether you go through treatment or you don't go through treatment, find a strong group you really like and get a strong sponsor, okay? Those two things can make all the difference in the world. Perfect, period. Great suggestions, Fred. And before we say goodbye, I have one more question for you. Of all the meetings you have attended anywhere in the world, which group is your favorite and where is that group located? Our Wednesday night group is a men's meeting. Really solid. It's a real brotherhood. We care about each other. We help each other. It meets in one of the members' condo in Escazú, Costa Rica. I'm telling you, we get anywhere from 12 to 18 guys there on a Wednesday night. It's really, really solid sobriety, and I love that group. <laughs> You've been there, Oh, Many You've times. You've been there. I love that group. It's one of my favorites. All right. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. 
While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then.